Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hi, you're going to hear a conversation about a songwriter and singer whom I'm guessing you've never heard of. Uh, And that's not that unusual. Her name is Connie Converse. She's only now being discovered after having sung, written and sung songs in the 1950s. These songs in the 1950s were recorded on a reel-to-reel tape recorder in the kitchenette of her Greenwich Village apartment, or at one point on a reel-to-reel tape recorder at parties hosted by a guy who lived in Hastings-on-Hudson. And no album, nothing like that. But they're so powerful, they found a way to our ears. You're going to hear this the story of that journey, Connie's journey and the journey of the man who seems to love her the most of all. So sort of a squirrel thing is not a a technical zoological term, uh, but it's a term used by Connie Converse. We are going to have a conversation about Connie Converse today with the person who has written a very, very comprehensive uh, biography. Sort of more than just a biography, too. It's really about a lot of things. Uh, The author is Howard Fishman. And so, and we'll tell you a little bit more about Howard. Um, I just want to quickly say something about how this show came to be, this episode came to be. Because we're actually a pretty hard show to pitch. We get pitched all the time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Frankly, we don't even open most of the emails, but uh, to the extent that we do it all, I mean, I don't know. It's just we want to do what we want to do. So, um, but you know, it was from Howard. We know him. We've worked with him before. He's also a very well-known musician and frequent contributor to The New Yorker. And so, I mean, I'm not going to not open the email. So I opened the email and he's all this stuff about somebody named Connie Converse. And I'm about to say words that have been said so many times by other people, but I should say them anyway. And they go something like this. I think of myself as somebody who knows an awful lot about music from an awful lot of genres. I've spent a good portion of my life just being a music nerd and knowing about stuff. 
And I did not know who Connie Converse was. And so before I even did anything else, I just got out my phone and hooked it up to a speaker and went to Tidal and and started playing stuff because there she was. And I said, I think, what what people say over and over again. I can't really actually say what I said, but I out loud said, holy crap. (laughs) Um, And and I think that that – Howard, I think that's a pretty – common reaction. I mean, I think a lot of people probably just say, well, that's not my cup of tea because there's there's something very eccentric and very special about all this. But uh, Howard Fishman, uh, the author of the biography To Anyone Who Ever Asks, The Life, Music, and Mystery of Connie Converse, I think that holy crap or some version of that is a pretty common thing when people hear this coming out of nowhere. I mean, with just no footprints obviously leading up to it. I think that's right, Colin. And that's exactly the reaction that I had when I first heard it, which was just one of total, uh, I felt astounded that this music existed. And as you say, embarrassed almost that I didn't know about it already. Right. But I think the embarrassment has to be over because, I mean, I've just heard so many people now say this and I ran the name by people I know who know more than I do about music. A lot of them drew a blank or one guy said, yeah, I read the Howard Fishman piece in The New Yorker. But other than that, I don't know anything. Uh, so so here's this person. And, and I, I should say the other thing that happened was I immediately got in touch with Lily Tyson, our senior producer, and I said, we're doing this show. I usually sort of invite a certain level of discussion about things with my producers. I just, oh, no, we're doing this show. There's just no question that we're doing this show. So we have to sort of, first of all, Howard, do the thumbnail of this person. We should say that there's a sort of Connie Converse renaissance going on, but that's sort of the wrong term because that would imply that there was another period where she was in the consciousness of the music-consuming public. But she she did her musical work in the 50s, and the number of people who knew she was doing it, I I feel like it might not have numbered more than 100. She was known to quip at that time, I have dozens of fans all over the world. (laughs) Now, that's gotten a little bit bigger. Right now, she's got, uh, I think, in no small part due to you, uh, but she's had other sort of St. Paul-type figures who've been spreading her gospel. She's got like 95, 5,000 monthly listeners on Spotify and quite a lot of other stuff going on, which we can we can mention. But I think the other part of this, Howard, and there there are other particularly women artists who have labored in obscurity, who just didn't get the, the rush or the ride that maybe some of their male counterparts did, just getting ready for the show. I discovered somebody named Linda Perhax I'd never heard of, who put out kind of an amazing album in the 1970s, and in 1970, and didn't put out another album for 45 years and worked as a dental hygienist. We both probably know Judy Sill, who was taken away by, by cancer, but who also just, even in her time, didn't get the kind of attention, I think, that, that she might have gotten if she were a man. But Howard, this is different, and I want you to explain why. This is different because it's not that there was an album that nobody listened to. This isn't Searching for Sugar Man. This is There Was No Album. Correct. There was no album. Connie Converse never made an album. She was active in New York in the 1950s. She basically played in people's living rooms and dinner parties. And she recorded herself on a reel-to-reel recorder in her Greenwich Village apartment, singing her songs. And she was also recorded by other people in New York City singing her songs. Those are the recordings that have been compiled on the album that was put out in 2009 that's called How Sad, How Lovely. And that's how she first came to my attention. But as you say, Colin, it's it's not really correct to say that she's been rediscovered because she was never discovered in the first place. The strange thing is that, well, one of many, many, many 
strange things about Connie Converse is that she had a brush with fame in that she appeared with Walter Cronkite on the CBS Morning Show in 1954. But no footage of that appearance exists. Uh, there are only photographs of it. So you would think that somebody who's on big time TV with Walter Cronkite would have left more of a footprint. But that's her footprint is basically six photographs of that appearance. And, and I love that your first reaction was that this was like the musical equivalent of George Plimpton's Sid Finch hoax in, in The New Yorker, uh, that somebody had just invented this fake person. And, I thought and, that that was the case, and I thought that those pictures with Cronkite must be photoshopped, and there's no way they could be real. So we should say a little bit, because How Sad, How Lovely is, is one of the few ways that people can kind of get at her now, at least for the time being, and there's one other smaller compilation and then there's these kind of art songs that are performed by by a different singer there's some stuff around but really how sad how lovely is the way you get at her and explain what's on how sad how lovely what what are those songs how do they even come to us yeah how sad how lovely is i believe the original album had 17 tracks i think a bonus track has since been added since then these are archival recordings that were made in the early 1950s either by converse herself or by other people recording her and it's just her and her guitar and her voice. And as I remember you writing to me, Colin, when you first, when I pitched this uh, story to you, you said something like there's an improbable mix of power and fragility to these recordings. And I thought, yes, that is spot on. That is that is exactly it. And, and there's a way in which I think if you're if she's going to set her hook in you, it's going to be in a sort of haunting way, right? There's sort of, there's almost, once you've listened to this stuff, there's an element of choice about listening to it that is removed. And there's an element of choice about whether you want to think about it or have it running through your head at odd moments or in yes. your mind when you wake up in the morning. That That's no longer necessarily in your control, right? That's correct. It has this power to just get under your skin in a way that just, it just doesn't let you go. At least that's been my experience since... 2010, the first time I heard it. It hasn't stopped. So this is, in this project of yours is, I, I think uh, I mean, the Wall Street Journal used the word that was running through my head as I was reading the book and thought, this is obsessive. This is a guy who is, whose soul, I mean, you've already written a play about her. You've written a, a piece in The New Yorker. This is a, a pretty major biography of her. But it's written in the first person by you, pretty much. And there's a sense that Howard is not going to get any peace in his life until this whole thing is at least between covers. I think that's right. Yeah. Obsession is maybe a word that could be used. It almost felt m like more than that, though, because I, it didn't feel that I had a choice. Just like you said, Colin, like I, once I started hearing the songs, I couldn't stop. It wasn't like I thought, oh, well, here's something for me to get obsessed about. It took me over. It, it completely took over my life. Yeah, I, I find myself thinking of the Sinatra standard under my skin. And there's that whole thing that repeats and repeats in my ears. Mm -hmm. uh, that was clearly mm -hmm. happening to you. And I think it's happening to a lot of us who listen to this music. So um, just before we go any further, just so people can get another little taste of this, let's play another little bit anyway of one of Connie Converse's songs. So I can't afford to dilly dally. I've got to work for my cotton work. For my denim linen and damask and shally Not like the day lily, lemon, lily, calla, lily 
So Howard Fishman, you know, there are reasons why maybe despite her appearance with Walter Cronkite, Connie Converse didn't get an album, didn't have some kind of at least minimal career. And some of those things may have have to do with how idiosyncratic her music is and how maybe in the 1950s people weren't ready for a kind of a singer-songwriter that wasn't really a thing at the time. I, I do believe that you, she probably paid a price for being a woman. For sure. Uh, but I think there's also just something about her, too. She's just a very odd person, and maybe her ability to pursue fame wasn't exactly everything it would have needed to be under those circumstances. She is powerful, Howard, but she is fragile. Say a little bit more about like the way in which she existed as a person in the 1950s. It's almost like she was cursed, I feel like. It's almost like she was a, a character like in a Twilight Zone episode or a science fiction movie whereby she went through her life as this invisible ghost that was making all this incredible work and not only music, but she made contributions as a political thinker, as an activist, um, as a writer, as a poet, as a painter. She was doing all these things, but nobody could see her. She, it, she, it was like she wasn't even here. And she later, after she wrote these beautiful songs for guitars, she wrote these art songs for voice and piano and Part of that group of songs was a song cycle based around the character of Cassandra. And Cassandra, her brother Phil told me, was how Converse felt about herself. And for those of you who may not be up on your Greek mythology, Cassandra went through her life. She was given the gift of prophecy. She could tell the future, but nobody could understand her. She was cursed to never be understood, and it drove her crazy. And... Connie Converse is a Cassandra. Right. Our listeners are well-versed in Cassandras because we did an entire show this year on Cassandras. Not only the Cassandra from Greek mythology, but we had several other examples, including Charity Dean, one of the few people who saw the pandemic coming. She was a public health officer in, in California who was memorialized in, in Michael Lewis's book. But but yes, the Cassandra is very much there. I have a message. You're not hearing my message. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's no wonder she's so attracted. We should say also... The reason that she started writing piano—I mean, there was no plan for her to have a musical career. As I understand it, she picked up the guitar at Mount Holyoke College, then dropped out. The piano songs are because I think she moved into an apartment where there was a piano. So why not figure out how to play it? I don't know exactly how that came to be. She, The apartment with the piano was in Harlem, and it was in the last stage of her years in New York. She lived in New York for 15 years, and uh, first on the Upper West Side, then in Greenwich Village— then in Harlem, then again on the Upper West Side. So um, I think that part of the appeal for her of the Harlem apartment was that it already had an upright piano. And I think she said, aha, I'm going to use that and I'm going to work on my compositional skills. And that's when her music became more formal and more stylized. You know, we don't have time in any way. The, it's worth just reading it in the book form, the, the whole story of her life and her very... I mean, I guess maybe all families are a little bit weird when you start to dig into them. But this is a family with secrets and, and a very prickly back history going back generations. But, I mean, maybe the key thing to, that is worth saying, she's born in the 1920s, and her parents are kind of, well, they're not kind of. They're very serious temperance movement kinds of people. They're not into any kind of free-swinging, roving woman life that involves a lot of drinking and smoking that's going to be kind of a reaction formation for her. They want exactly the opposite, right? 
That's correct. Yes, the, these were strict New England Baptist parents who were not at all interested in any of the things that Connie Converse ended up doing with her life. In fact, they frowned upon it in a serious way. So there's so many questions and, and not enough answers. I guess we haven't said the thing that I feel like has maybe been a little over fetishized, and I'm guessing you do too, which is at the end of her story, she disappears. She's living out in Ann Arbor, Michigan with her brother, Phil, and his wife, Jean, and things aren't really going great. And she's got a, a health issue that's coming up and the job that she kind of enjoyed doing wasn't really going to be around anymore. And she writes a whole bunch of goodbye letters to people, and then she just drives off in a VW bug, and nobody ever figures out where she went or what happened. I mean, I don't know. There's there's all these sort of unsolved mystery podcasts that are like obsessing over that to the almost exclusion of her music. But it is, it's sort of in a very grim way fits a lot of what we've already said. Well, it fits because the, the sad poetic irony of it is that Connie Converse needed to disappear to be seen. So it's the thing that makes us pay attention to her. And had she not disappeared, I don't know, maybe this music would still be lost. But you're right. I think it's over fetishized. And as I say at the end of the book, ask not how she disappeared, ask how she lived, because her life is the really compelling thing. Absolutely. We should probably take a little break here and we'll do that. And we'll, we're going to come back. We have lots, lots more to talk about with Howard Fishman, his book, which is just out to anyone who ever asks the life, music and mystery of Connie Converse. We'll go out with a little bit more of Connie. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. We go walking
So that's Connie Converse again. Um, the song is One by One. Uh, we're with Howard Fishman. Uh, his book, uh, To Anyone Who Ever Asks, The Life, Music, and Mystery of Connie Converse, uh, is out now. Uh, you should get it. It's fascinating. Um, and, you know, Howard, maybe one thing we haven't quite emphasized enough. I was listening to—I've listened to a lot of other podcasts about Connie Converse that have been done sporadically over the years. And I've now forgotten the name of the one that I was listening to. But it's a guy who does, who he, for the most part, takes poetry that's been set to music and he kind of analyzes it. And he said he was sort of breaking his pattern. He played this song. He said, I don't yes. usually do this when the lyric and the music are written by the same person. But he, he said, and he spent quite a lot of time reading it with no music. He said, you know, on the continuum of, of lyrics, there's one way, one side where the, music, the lyric could be freestanding, could be independent of the music, because this is an example of that. And maybe you could say just a little bit more, not even necessarily about this song, but about the, the sheer poetry of these lyrics. Yeah. Um, the guy you're talking about is a guy named Stephen Rogers, who has a beautiful podcast called, God, Art <laughs> Song. You don't remember it either. <laughs> I don't remember the name of it. Art Song Augmented, I think is the name of okay. it. And um, yes, I highly recommend that episode. What's really fascinating about his analysis of one by one and the fact that he chose it to begin with is that for most of the Connie Converse phenomenon of this century, she has been idolized and maybe fetishized by a certain kind of music listener, mostly for those guitar songs. Um, Stephen Rogers puts this song one by one in the category of art song. Mm. And I think that the way that he first heard about it is that uh, last year, the soprano Julia Bullock included her rendition of this song on her debut album for Nonesuch. And she placed it alongside um, composers like Samuel Barber and John Adams and placed Connie Converse not as a you know, uh, folky Americana, early indie artist, but as a serious composer. And I think she deserves to be treated that way as well. Yeah. yeah. Another thing that I noticed that he did, I think he played the Julia Bullock version first. And then he said, you know, when I learned a little bit more about this, I thought, well, maybe they, you know, the piano arrangement kind of Schuberted the whole thing up so it would sound, mm-hmm. sound more like a leader, more sound more like an art song. And then he said, and then I listened to the original, and this, no, it's all there. All those it's musical all qualities yeah. are there. And, and this is another thing we haven't maybe said enough about, which is, you know, you actually have kind of a long meditation in the book about the problem of genre, the problem of pigeonholing and marketing and stuff like that. But this this is Quicksilver. I mean, she clearly is influenced by sort of really old, old, you know, primal Jimmy Rogers type country music and, and, and mm-hmm. by the blues. Uh, mm-hmm. And but you can hear so many different other things uh, in yeah. the music, including Schubert and including I think you and I both had the same association listening to a couple of tunes where the chords really kind of sounded like Sondheim. And of course, it would not have been yeah. possible for her to have been influenced by Sondheim because he had not written any music at that point. Right. So, but say a little bit more about this. You're much more of the musicologist. I mean, how do we talk about her in a way that makes any sense? Yeah, I mean, the, the shorthand version is to say, you know, combination of George Gershwin, Bob Dylan, and Charles Ives. But I, yeah, <laughs> for sure, Stephen Son- what Stephen Sondheim would come to do seems to be in there. The sort of freak folk movement of this century seems to be in there. 
the DNA of Connie Converse's musical language is extraordinarily complex and braided and deep and doesn't make a lot of sense because how can one composer contain all of these things? And sadly, I think it's one of the things, as I talk about in that section about genres, that makes it so hard for an artist in America who wants to be successful at what they do to market themselves because we want bite-sized explanations of what people do. We don't want to hear everything I just said. We want to say, oh, she sounds like the Carter family. And you can't sum up Connie Converse very quickly. And so a lot of people quickly will lose attention. And that means that she doesn't, people like Connie Converse don't make it. And there are guaranteed a lot of Connie Converses out there right now who, because their music is not branded and hasn't been dumbed down into an elevator pitch, are struggling. Well, it's even worse than that in a way, because now we are increasingly at the mercy of algorithms, which is both bad news and good news, because the algorithms might actually be a little bit more subtle than a record company marketing person. I'm on Tidal. That's my streaming service. And I just sort of played a whole bunch of Connie Converse and just let the algorithm decide what to serve me up. And there was at least one artist named Sybil Baker, who I'd never heard of, who really did sound kind of like Connie Converse. So maybe the algorithm is smarter than the guy sitting in the big office. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a real problem. And, and there's a way in which it's not that her music is out of place in the 1950s. To me, it's more that she's sui generis and would have been essentially at any moment that you tried to introduce her. Yes, I think that's right. So one question that I have is how much has she influenced other people? She hasn't had a really great opportunity to do that, although, you know, once these recordings started to come out. And I did notice there's a tribute album called Vanity of Vanities, where like Karen O oh and Cassandra Jenkins and Laurie Anderson, and I think somebody from the Decemberist, I mean, they're all doing these songs. So there's a way in which maybe she's having an opportunity to be heard by other people who make music. I think that's very much the case. And there are, you know, some pretty significant stars now who talk about her as an influence, people like Angel Olsen and Greta Klein from Frankie Cosmos. She's she's definitely starting to be somebody who is an influencer long after she's been gone. It's also, you know, I mean, uh, Lily Tyson's making this point to me right now, but it's it's a really good point, which is, you know, in 1961, Bob Dylan is piling all of his stuff in a car and yeah. driving from the Midwest to New York, and he could have waved to Connie Converse going in the other direction across the median strip, right? She's right. leaving New York when the closest identifiable thing to a Connie Converse-type movement is starting up. Could you say a little bit more about that? I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary stroke of bad luck that she left when she did, because had she stuck around a little longer, I do think... I mean, I, she wasn't writing protest songs, and that's what Bob Dylan got famous for initially. So I don't think she would have gotten famous in 1962 when Bob Dylan uh, recorded Blown in the Wind. When he started to change over and started writing more personal songs, say around 1964, maybe late 1963, uh, then the ground that she had been paving for him and his cohort for a dozen years or so might have been ready for to appreciate what she was doing. Although there's also a way in which, yeah, it's hard to see her writing exactly protest songs, but we know from the scholarly work that she was doing that she was 
kind of quite aware of the world, uh, oh, yeah. writing for these academic journals. And like Dylan, I think she does have the tendency. I mean, Dylan doesn't write songs to say, hey, let's get the hell out of Vietnam. <laughs> you know, he writes songs where there's you have to do a little bit of the work yourself. There's There are allusions. Uh, and she also wrote very elusively. You can sit and listen to one of her songs or read the lyrics four or five times and extract very, very different meanings from them. I think that's right. I think that's right. And I think that there is a, um, a straight line between her and Bob Dylan in terms of that sort of craftsmanship of lyric writing. Right. I mean, and I think there's also a through line in the sense that neither one of them has a conventionally attractive singing voice. You know, it's a singing voice that, you, once again, you have to really make a, a choice or an instinctive move towards it. Her voice, to me, always sounds like it's just about to give out somehow. But as a, but that's just how she sings, right? But it, it makes you kind of lean forward, like, what's what's going to happen here? It does. And it, like Bob Dylan, it makes it so that it it's not background music. It's not it's, it's not easy listening music. Just like with Bob Dylan, it makes you pay attention. Just in ways that pay dividends. Because when we do pay attention to a Connie Converse or a Bob Dylan, it changes our chemistry. You know, it changes the way that we think and the way that we feel. I was at one time a really, really terrible rock critic, but I wrote a um, review of a Bob Dylan record. And, and I said, people who take themselves seriously pay a big price. And, you know, I, I think what's... Which mis- record was it? I can't remember. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, it, and it doesn't matter. Nothing yeah. that I ever wrote as a rock critic ever mattered. But um, I think with both of them, there is a seriousness to their work that conceals a very arts and kind of mischievous sense of humor. I mean, over the over time, it became more clear how funny Dylan thought some of his stuff really was yeah. and, and how much he was just in a very sort of poop-disturbing way just trying to, you know, cause a lot of trouble to make himself laugh. And this, I mean, even the first song we played here, you know, Up the Tree, there's a sort of squirrel thing. You yeah. know, I mean, there's just something very funny about the way she sees the world. And I know that's something that you've really come to treasure. Uh, for sure. She has such a wry sensibility in a beautifully funny way of observing the world and translating her experience of the world into song and into poetry, I, I find it delightful. I mean, there are sure uh, times in her music that are serious and quite dark, but there's also a tremendous lightness in the felicity about her songwriting. All right. You know, we're going to grab another break here. Uh, this gives us an opportunity to go out with uh, another one of Connie Converse's songs. Uh, we're talking to Howard Fishman, his new biography to anyone who ever asks. The life, music and mystery of Connie Converse is now out. We'll come back. We'll have a little bit more time with Howard after this. So it's time for me to do the credits. They're a little smaller than usual, I think. <laughs> Usually we have a lot of people working on this stuff, but right now Lily Tyson is my technical producer today, uh, and I'm sitting here, and I, I think that's kind of everybody so far, unless we make McNichol do some work on the clips. So thanks to Lily Tyson, uh, and we are talking to Howard Fishman, his new biography of Connie Converse, this very, very mysterious, fascinating, enigmatic, playful contradiction-ridden uh, figure uh, who created unforgettable music in the 1950s that was nonetheless forgotten uh, is out right now. And so I do want to just take one or two moments. I mean, one of the things that I enjoyed 
about this book, Howard, is that, yes, it is a biography. It's also very much a sort of a set of commentaries about music, the nature of music, all kinds of aspects of it. And it's a lot of other things, too. But it's also kind of a detective story, necessarily. And and you're the gumshoe. You know, you're Philip Marlowe going around. And you're talking to a lot of people who, in many cases, haven't thought about this for a really long time right. or are keeping family secrets or are there's one guy who's like very, very key to the the unveiling of Connie Converse to any kind of public. And you have to go to Prague to talk to him. And it turns out when you get there, he kind of doesn't want to talk about Connie yeah. Converse. But I mean, to say a little bit more about the process in the way that I'm talking about here of, of putting this whole thing together. Yeah. Well, when I first heard Connie Converse's music, I went home that night and I got on the Internet and I looked for information about her. And there was information about the 2009 release of How Sad, How Lovely. There were some people blogging and reviewing about that release. And then there was nothing, nothing about Connie Converse. Nobody with the name Connie Converse seemed to exist. The only thing I was able to find was one scholarly article that she had written for the Journal of Conflict Resolution in the 1960s. And that was it. There were no performances to be found, no reviews, no photographs of her other than what was included in the release. So the process of writing this book, Colin, was I had to start from scratch and I had to do a little sleuthing, well, more than a little sleuthing, which involved making a lot of cold calls, knocking on doors and trying to use my imagination to think, okay, well, who would have known this person? Where might they be now? And talking to those people and hearing them say, you want to talk about who? Elizabeth Converse? Why? (laughs) Yes. And and this included all kinds of people, including, I think, at least two cabaret singers who'd been using her stuff in the past. And one of them, like, just kept on using it. One of my favorite moments in the book is a woman woman who kept on using at least one of the songs, maybe more, in her cabaret act, but just after a very short time, fell out of touch with Connie. And then you show up and you tell the whole story. And she said, I have no idea. I'll contact my psychic immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That's what we needed. That's we just needed the psychic. Right. Yeah. So So a a lot of the book is, as you say, it's not really a conventional biography because a lot of the book is, it, it involves me laying out the puzzle pieces that I found and then letting the reader try to assemble them because there's no complete picture of Connie Converse. There are all these pieces, all these trails that sometimes lead nowhere, sometimes lead a little ways down and then I hit a dead end. Sometimes they, uh, I hit pay dirt and I find something really fascinating and extraordinary about her. But the book is about my process of finding those things and looking for those things as much as they are about the nuts and bolts of her story. Right. And I think it's also compounded by the fact that this is the family itself is essentially a family of New Hampshire porcupines. I mean, they've got their quills out if they're around to talk. I mean, it's they're a little all over the map. You you form a bond with her brother, Phil, who is both her preserver and her destroyer. Quite literally, he preserved the stuff that you wouldn't have been able to get any other way. He also just inexplicably destroyed another huge tranche of it. But I mean, and you eventually find, you know, at any wedding, there's always one member of the bride's family who will tell the whole family story, you know, the, the stuff that nobody wants you to know. And you found that guy, Tim, I think is his name. But this is a family that took its secrets pretty seriously and kind of had its quills out for anybody like you who might come along. Well, I mean, I, I 
try, when I think about this and when I have thought about it over these years, I have tried to empathize with the idea of a stranger coming to me and saying, I'm writing a book about somebody in your family and I want to know everything about you and about your family and about your relative and how uh, disorienting and invasive that might be. So, you know, I, I understand it's, it's not easy to have to talk about, especially when there's trauma in the family. We, you have a relative who's disappeared, who may have been a suicide, who was depressed and alcoholic and had a bad end. So I think they, you know, the family has had to deal with a lot. And I empathize with that. So, yeah. And by the way, Howard's dog is in the background. Howard Dog thinks this interview has gone along way too long and wants to go for a walk. But he has to wait a little bit longer. She's a rescue. I just got her five days ago and she's still oh, getting used to oh. things. Well, no wonder. Put on some Connie Converse. She'll love it. So, yeah. Uh, one other thing I wanted to say before we get to kind of the moral of the story is, I mean, this book is obviously going to make a big difference. Uh, and in the interviews like this one you're doing for this book and the reviews the book gets, there's some other stuff going on. And there's right around the same time you were out there talking to her brother, Phil, and sister-in-law, Jean. There was a documentary crew out there. They've done their thing. There was at one point, I think, a Vim Vendor's backed feature that was feature film that was supposed to come out. I don't know if that we're ever going to um, see that. Well, what what that is, there's a movie, a, a Vim Vendor's produ executive produced film called Roving Woman, mm -hmm. which uses Connie Converse's disappearance as a jumping off point to tell a different kind of contemporary uh -huh. story, but it's really not about her. Uh, okay. That's, so I, I, there is, you know, as we said at the beginning, it's not a renaissance because that implies that there was a previous incarnation, which really nobody really ever got to see or hear. Uh, but there's a thing that's happening right now. But I also just think, and I think you think, too, about all the other Connie Converses. Yes, she was sui generis. Maybe we're talking about a talent that, that really doesn't have a lot of obvious analogs. But there are, I don't know, one of the people you mentioned in the book in passing. I was very impressed, Howard, that you mentioned Albert Pinkham Ryder. But here's this painter. Ah. He's a painter who's like a contemporary of, like, Aikens, and I would say Homer, maybe. Uh, you know, but he, like, died in his apartment in <laughs> squalor. Nobody, you know, had any idea who he was. His work is very unsettling and brilliant in a way that maybe is similar to Connie. But there, there must be... A hundred, five hundred, a thousand, three thousand people all over this country right now who are laboring in obscurity, whose gifts go unnoticed, who maybe they're not Connie Converse, but they might be something else very special. And and I think one of the things your book asks is, so how do we kind of curate that stuff so it doesn't meet a similar fate? Yes, I think that's true. And I do think it's the moral of the story. And it's what what we, I think what Connie Converse has to teach us is that we can mend our ways as a culture and pay attention to the neighbor next door who is making something beautiful and isn't doing it for likes and hits on social media, but because it's an expression of who they are. And can we be more local with the way that we appreciate art and the way that we're trying to be more local in the food that we eat and the different kinds of communities that we create. Yeah, I, I, I do want to, I think I said this when we were off the air, but I do want to do a show, another show about women like Judy Sill and Linda Brax and people like that who, who didn't get noticed. And I think my co-host is going to be a local singer, songwriter named Kate Callahan, who we've spent quite a bit of time uh, holding up to the to the public because we think she's amazing. And everybody, every community probably has a bunch of those and it's certainly worth doing. But as you're saying, it's a much broader question than just music. I mean, it's it's everywhere. And so, you know, how do we become 
those kinds of people. And I guess maybe just to circle back here to Connie Converse, I think the other thing that makes her feel very, very contemporary, almost no matter what year it is that you're listening to her, is that one of her themes, and it's a theme that we really just experienced very powerfully during the pandemic, is loneliness. I mean, the first song we played is a song effectively about loneliness, but there's more and more of those songs. And you've documented the fact that in a way she had kind of a a rich family life, I mean, very close, in particular to that one brother that, you know, when she came back to New York on her way to a trip to London, there were a lot of people she should have called but but didn't, but people who were meaningful to her. But it does feel like a De Carico painting or something. There's something very incredibly lonely about this story that's also, I think, familiar to anybody who's ever felt lonely. Well, I think that's true, Colin, and I think it comes back to what I was saying um, about the moral of the story. We... Culturally, Connie Converse, people like Connie Converse have something to express, and maybe art is the only way that they can do that. That's the language that they know. That's the way that they feel connected to the outside world, and they can do it in another way. Connie Converse was very shy. As you said, she was very prickly. She was kind of a weirdo, but through this music that she made, she was trying to be understood, and it was an essential part of her. And this really resonated with me because my dad was a classical violinist. And when he was, he was a prodigy. And uh, when he got to uh, be an adult, he came to, it was like he really internalized the lesson that we as a culture teach, which is art is a game and there's winners and losers. And to be a successful artist means making a ton of money. And to be an unsuccessful artist means not making a ton of money. And he wanted to support a family and he wanted to have a decent life. So he put down his violin and he never picked it up again. I mean, I can count on one hand the number of times I heard him play violin when I was a kid. And yet this was playing the violin was an expression of who he was. And my dad, you know, he was successful at what he did uh, in business. But I think there was something missing in his life that he was never able to solve. And he had struggles in his life. And I think the fact that he was not able to express himself creatively because culturally that was the message that he got was was the problem. And I think that this is what happens every time arts education is cut in our schools and every time we make art into a competition of winners and losers instead of treating it for what it is, which is the expression of people who need to be connected who can't do it in any other way. Well, we need to go out for a cup of coffee sometime because my father was a playwright who had a Broadway hit well, well before I was born and then got one other show produced on Broadway, but it was very unsuccessful. And then for really all of my life was a real estate agent who was trying to write plays at night and not getting them sold. Oh, so wow. uh, so I think we have a lot to talk about, Howard, or maybe okay. we just did. I don't know. But the book is great. And I really do recommend it to anyone to and to anyone who ever asks is the title, The Life, Music and Mystery of Connie Converse by Howard Fishman. Thank you so much for taking time uh, today to talk to me. But maybe more importantly, thank you for Connie Converse. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And thank you to Lily, too, for helping out. Let's go out with one of her songs. 